0: All right, we're going to be. Um, <clears throat> we'll finish Psalm 23 this morning, which was not my plan, but um, I don't know. As the week unfolded, it seemed like providentially that that would be a good thing to do. Ultimately, where we're headed, just so you know, is uh, a series on Haggai. Um, I don't know how long that will last, but we're going to go through it expositionally and um, do it with a view toward what it is that this body of believers is trying to accomplish in the coming months, which is to plant or replant, however you want to put it, Springfield Baptist Church, um, under my new suggested name. Never mind. <laughs> It'll be called that. I'm just joking. What I was going to say... We missed something, what? We missed something, we don't yeah, no, there's no... <clears throat> you missed nothing, other than I, my filter engaged, and I did not finish the joke I was going to make. So <laughs> um, let me pray, and then we'll read Psalm 23. Father, we, we love you, and as we have just sang, um, we fully entrust ourselves to you, and some, in some sense, because we recognize, um, what else are we going to do? And in some sense, because we have a history of your faithfulness in our lives. Um, we have a history of being held fast by you. And so we look to the future with an expectant hope and a confidence because everything that you have said you will do, you've done it. So it's reasonable for us to expect that you'll continue to care for us and protect us. But I recognize that there are many in this room and in this body of believers who are going through uh, struggles that uh, were unexpected and are, as always, are painful So we pray, Holy Spirit, this morning as we work through the rest of Psalm 23. You would be pleased to move in our hearts and minds in such a way that we become more keenly aware of how much you do care for us and how closely you do hold us. And we ask for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 23, we'll just read the whole thing. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Last week, we just looked at the first three verses, and we started off by noticing some characteristics of the shepherd. And I, you know, fudged and went to another passage. We went to John 10 to identify those more clearly revealed characteristics of Jesus. And there were five marks of the shepherd, and then there were five marks of the sheep that we saw. So the five marks of the shepherd were, he knows his sheep, which means we don't have any secrets from Jesus. There's nothing we're up to he's not fully aware of. Second, he calls his sheep by name. And that means that you were not, if you're a Christian, you were not caught in some broad net that God cast out there. You were caught and loved and saved with specificity. He knew you before he called you out of sin. The third thing we saw was that he leads his sheep, which tells us that whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing, Jesus must be between you and it, whatever it is, because he's leading you. That puts him between you and all of the difficulties of life that you face. Fourth, we saw that he came That the sheep might have life. That means that God's desire for you, look right at me, God's desire for you is to live. He doesn't desire your death. He doesn't kind of wish he had just taken you out years ago. In fact, and the fifth characteristic shows, he laid down his life so that you could have life. He's given up, he gave up everything in order to redeem you from sin. And then we saw the marks of the sheep. They hear when he calls. We call that sovereign grace. They know his voice. They follow him. They know him. And my favorite one, they're part of the flock. So we're in this together with Jesus leading us. And I, I take great comfort and confidence in, in those marks. We saw the importance of first-person possessive pronouns. The Lord is not a shepherd. He is not someone's shepherd. He is My. my shepherd. right? That's critical. We saw that he will not withhold, so we will not be without. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And what I did was I contorted the Scriptures to make that say, We're not talking about money and cars and houses. We're talking about the abundant supply of grace found at the throne of grace. And the way that I identified the abundance of this supply is I asked the question, what if on the day of judgment, you stand before the seat of the judge, God the Father, and he says, you sinned one too many times. And you think, what was the last one? That was the one that doomed me. That's not going to happen. Because where sin abounds, Romans 5.20, grace abounds all the more. So he will not withhold, so we will not be in want. Then we saw that he makes us lie down. Sometimes God tells us to lie down. Uh, You see this when Jesus sends his disciples off to quiet places for respite. But sometimes he makes us lie down because if you're like me, you don't know how to lie down. And so when God tells you to lie down, your rebellion, you know, comes out and that you don't. And so he gives you a hernia or a broken collarbone or the flu or COVID or, you know, whatever, so that you'll lie down. And while you're lying down, not able to do anything that you would normally do to distract yourself, something beautiful happens. He lays us in green pastures so that the Holy Spirit might go to work on your heart, changing you and making you more aware of your desperate need for the aforementioned grace that he supplies. When he's done having you lie down, he has you get up and then he leads you beside still waters. The way that I explain this is there is plenty of chaos in life. There's the chaos of work, there's the chaos of what's in the news, there's the chaos of your family relationships, there's the chaos of social media, and God is not the God of chaos, but organization, and so he takes us through these seasons where there is peace and there's peace in an abundant supply, and the way that the song puts this is, we're led along beside still waters, and I'll tell you, still waters are usually deep waters, They're not usually shallow. So while this is happening, the Lord restores my soul through His Word, through His people, and through our prayers. God mends broken hearts, He tends troubled minds, He washes away the stain of sin and the shame of guilt. In doing so, He restores something that we can't restore. You can go to physical therapy and restore a muscle or a joint that's been out of whack due to some injury. You can eat to restore your energy. You can have coffee to mask the symptoms of exhaustion, but there is nothing you can do for your broken heart. And time does not heal a broken heart. But God will, through the means that he has appointed. Scripture, fellowship, and prayer, I believe, are the main ones that he uses. And he does all of this for his own name's sake. God has attached the surety of your salvation to the sureness of his glory. If you are not saved, God is not glorified. That's how he has set it up. Now, I don't mean that in an absolute sense because I'm not a universalist. There are people surely in this room who are not saved and God is still gonna be glorified. I'm talking about the child of God who struggles with the assurance of your salvation. Here's how you know. God has said, as sure as I'm glorious, you're going to be my child in glory. He does all this. Look, look at what it says in verse 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That means he's doing it for his own glory. So that was last week. Um, if you don't remember all that, that's okay. That's why I review it. Verse 4, let's soldier on. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I love the Bible because nothing is slanted. Nothing is bent. God is completely honest and transparent. And uh, it's funny to me. Some of the things that the, you know, the anti-Bible, anti-theists use to mock the Bible are the, the same things that give me such confidence in its authenticity. Like, oh, Moses was a terrible person. David was an awful king. Peter wasn't a very good disciple. I'm like, I know. And if God was trying to trick you, he would have left all that out of his word. But it's all there so you can see it and identify with those people. Because you're also terrible and not a very good disciple, right? So David gets done talking about having his soul restored, being led by still waters, led in paths of righteousness for the sake of the glory of God. And he goes right into this valley of the shadow of death. Well, what is that? Let's look at Job 10. Job chapter 10, which is back in your Bible from where we're at. This is a little trick called find a similar phrase in your Bible to explain the one you're looking at. In Job 10, verse 21, we have a description of this same place. Before I go and I shall not return... To the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom, like thick darkness, like deep shadow, without any order, where light is as thick darkness. So that's a more detailed description of the place David is talking about in Psalm 23. This is a place, listen, of profound darkness and disorder, chaos, depression, and not hope. I don't I'm assuming all of us have been in situations in life where we that's what we felt like we were in, right? Every like when I was four and I was about to get whipped for do it like and I deserved it, that that's your valley of the shadow of death, right? When you're forty, maybe it's a little bit different, maybe it's a little worse, maybe it's the death of your father. Maybe it's a friend who's going through a miscarriage. Maybe it's a loved one who's going through cancer. Like, there's all kinds of different valleys of the shadow of death where life seems to be all made up of heartache and hurt, right? And this is not me misappropriating the scriptures. David is not ultimately, purposely only talking about actually going to death. He's talking about difficult circumstances of life that break your heart. This is the place where hope just kind of evades you? Have you been there? Where, what, and maybe You know what? Maybe it's not even circumstances. Maybe you just wake up one morning and you're like, everything sucks and I want to die. You ever felt that? And you just can't shake it off? Just like, oh, this is depressing. I'm depressed. You, just, like, you, like, you, you breathe in depression and you breathe out anxiety. And it goes on for sometimes days and weeks. Maybe it's because you've lost the battle with sin and temptation for the trillionth time. Maybe it's because you've done something wrong and you're just waiting to get caught. There's all kinds of reasons you end up in the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe the future just looks threatening, like you spent too much time watching Alex Jones' videos. (laughs) When you find yourself in the valley, the Lord would have you know this. Look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Let's look at John 14 together. John chapter 14. Verse 1. Well-known passage. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is Jesus talking. All right. Look, this is so important. The danger that I face in preaching a message like this one, besides the fact that you might all be bored to tears. The second danger that I face in preaching a message like this one is you might get the idea that I'm trying to convince you, you should always be happy and upbeat and positive. And I'm not trying to convince you of that. I don't believe that. And I disagree with any preacher that would advance the notion that there's something wrong with you when you're down in the dumps. That's not true. Right. okay? But there, it must be that there is hope and joy that undergirds and supplants unhappiness. Mm-hmm. It has to be that in the midst of raging sorrow... We have a hope that doesn't disappoint. So when Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled, he's not saying Christians should never be sad. Okay, here we go. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. So there's a valley of the shadow of death, which surpasses all other valleys of the shadow of death, right? And this is the one that actually concludes in your death. I don't know what that's going to look like for you. You maybe have watched loved ones go through it. I've seen valleys that lasted for years, and I've Seen ones that nobody even knew they were in it, and then it was over with. That's the ultimate valley. The one that concludes in you not having life in your physical body anymore. So here's what Jesus is saying. The last valley that you're going to traverse, with that in mind, three things he says in John 14. Number one, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. Now, what I want to do is just split that off and and look at it this way. Effect, cause, right? The effect is your heart's not troubled. The cause is you believe in Jesus Christ. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. Don't do this. Do this. Are we on the same page? All right, so second... I forgot to put my iPad, and then we all just got blown up, right? Who texts during church? The whole church. Who does that? I'll tell you who does that. Kim Matheson does that. <laughs> Second, all right, so first is let not your hearts be troubled. This is why I have notes. Amen. <laughs> let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. Second, I'm going to prepare a place for you where my father dwells. That's the second thing he says. We good? There's a place Jesus went to prepare for us where his father dwells. If it was true of his disciples, it's true of us. Okay. Third, I will personally take you to that place. Isn't that what it says? Let me go back up and read it again. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to take you there myself. What we're going to do is we're going to argue from the greater to the lesser. The greater valley is the one that concludes with your death. Are we all good with that? That's the darkest valley of all. And what Jesus just said is, I'm going to take you through that. So don't let your heart be troubled. I'm leading you. Remember, we saw that last week. The shepherd is leading us, and he's leading us all the way through the end, through the valley of the shadow of death, always between me and whatever I'm facing. So what does David say about that valley? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me in that valley, okay? For the Christian, there is no dark valley which will not ultimately result in us seeing the other side. Because he says, I'm going through it. It's not even though I'm laying in or lying in, which is it? I'm lying in the valley of the shadow of death. It's not even though I'm here with two broken femurs, it's I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death and the Lord of Lords is with me, guiding me along. So here's my question. If Jesus promises to lead us through that final valley, which ends with us dwelling with him in glory, stay with me because it's a long sentence with lots of prepositions, If Jesus is promising to lead us through that valley, which ends in us dwelling with Him in glory, what valley is He then not going to lead us through? What are we going to face where Jesus is like, oh, my bad, I forgot you were in there? That's not going to happen. Paul uses this argument in Romans 8:32 where he argues from the greater to the lesser and here's the way he says it. He who did not spare his own son but gave him for us all will he not also with him freely give us all things or graciously give us all things. Now Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. This I mean I have a heart if I had been alive when Charles Spurgeon was preaching I would have been kicked out of his church because I would have laughed constantly at the wrong time during his sermons, right? Listen to this. This cracks me up, because it, it, it just, it, it leaves you standing naked under the lights of God, right? The way Charles says this. <laughs> the worst evils of life are those which do not exist except in our imagination. If we had no troubles but real troubles, we should have not a tenth part of our present sorrows. <laughs> There is a, a, a friend of mine, some of you guys know him, Mikey, Mike Stone Jr. His mom, I was at her office at, at, when she worked for OPS once, and she had uh, one of those needlepoint things, cross-stitch, I don't know, what the, whatever. That's probably crochet, knitting, it's all the same to me. Anyway, it was one of those things hanging on her wall, and it said 90% of what I worry about never actually happens. See, it does work. Get it? I think it's hilarious. You know he's with you. You know he cares for you. You know he knows you. You know he's leading you. Those are the marks of the shepherd. So let's all take a breath. Because whatever you're going through, you're not going through it alone. You think he doesn't know how to use that rod and staff? Like if the shepherd perceives a danger to you, don't you think he'll beat it back? Oh, well, no, let's not all say yes, because the truth of the matter is in our heart of hearts, the answer is no. We don't think he will beat it back because we've been in danger and we've been hurt and we've had our hearts ripped out. And we sat there and went, well, where was Jesus when that happened? He was making you lie down. He was trying to get you to those green pastures so that he could go to work on that heart that just got ripped out. Because God is always at work when we're in pain. Always. And let's be honest, most of us don't grow a lot when we're on the roller coaster. We grow when we're struggling and suffering. You can see the faithfulness of God in your hurts and heartaches. If he sees you wandering off the path, won't he use that crook at the end of his staff to yank you back? I've been there. Yeah, he does. And we're moaning and groaning, life's so hard. Now God's just yanking you back onto the path because you wandered off again. Like, what is there to fear? I'll fear no evil for he's with me. Well, there is something to fear. Again, the Bible's not going to lie to you. Look at verse five, because there's enemies. Psalm 23, verse five, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Of course there's enemies. Of course there are, right? This doesn't surprise any of us, does it? We've met them. We've encountered them. But before we get into that, this is really important. Vic, Vic, he doesn't care. Vic, this is important. All right. And I always struggle with whether or not to say this because I think it's, it's one of those tangents I think I don't go on very often, but I probably go on it a lot. And Joelle's not here to tell me. <laughs> Usually she would let me know. So tangentially, before we get into the enemies, let me advise you to make sure you aren't the problem. Some Christians I've met Like they whine and they moan about enemies talking about, oh, I'm so oppressed because I'm a Christian. And it's like, no, you're oppressed because you're nasty. They're they're mean. They're spiteful. They've got a grudge against everyone who's ever cut them off in traffic. They constantly put people down. They can tell you what's wrong with everyone else. right? And if you don't know this person, you are this person. And all of us on some level are this person. Like, you don't have enemies because you're a Christian. You have enemies because you're awful. And God lovingly gave you person after person after person in your life to try to point this out to you, but you found something wrong with every single one of them. So instead of having deep, meaningful relationships, what you do is you find a new friend group every 18 months or two years. Instead of staying with something that's difficult, you get a new job every 18 months or two years. Because everywhere you go, you find something wrong with everybody around you. And you're extremely good at identifying the faults and failures of people who are out there trying to make a difference in the world and failing at it. You're great at that. If this is you, you don't have enemies. You have consequences. Mm -hmm. And you're in real danger. Have you met people like this? I'm always at the edge of being that person because I used to think God gave me the gift of discernment, which means I can identify everything that's wrong with everybody else and then later in life learn that, in fact, that just makes you a reprobate. Discernment, I think, is found more clearly in someone's ability to identify the gifts and graces in someone else. Hallelujah. The Pharisees thought Jesus was an enemy, so how do you know you're not just like them? Mm-hmm. It's hard it's hard to be honest. With the exception of Christ, there's never been a spiritual leader on earth who didn't have some faithful friends. So if you don't, I suggest to you that you probably need some counseling. Like you need to go somewhere where there's a person with certificates hanging on the wall behind them and have them kind of go through your life with you and identify some things that you might need to change or you're in real danger of being the enemy. All right, so that aside, step two, once you know you aren't the problem, stop being shocked that you have enemies. And I love the way Peter puts this in 1 Peter 4.2. He says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Almost sarcastic, like, that really resonates with me. I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> of course you have enemies. If you're going to live like Jesus and make any kind of concerted effort at all, people are going to oppose you. I know I've said this a hundred times when, when, when I've been preaching, but now I'm living it, right? Because I'm back out there in the secular marketplace. And I'm, <laughs> hear my heart. This isn't me going, look how martyr I am. That's not what I mean at all. But I know for a fact, if you do your job, you'll make enemies. Don't you dare go give an eight hours work for eight hours pay, because that's going to make some people mad who would rather do about two hours work for eight hours pay, and when you just do the bare minimum and it shines far, far, far lighter than their bright light that they were hoaxing everybody with, they'll hate you for it. Like, that's all you have to do. You don't have to preach. You don't have to pick on them for their lifestyle. Just show up, give eight hours work for eight hours pay. They're going to hate you. Not everybody, but somebody. Okay? You'll have enemies, or they'll invent reasons to hate you. You know what God loves to do when people lie about you, slander you, gossip about you, and flat out try to destroy you? He loves to prepare a table for you before your enemies. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't love this. I would rather just get out of the situation. I don't want to be before my enemies. But he loves to set a table. So the next time you're wound up, over people lying about you, slandering you, hating on you, and gossiping about you. Here's what I want you to picture. Right? All your haters and gossipers and slanders are gathered around, wagging the finger at you, and here comes the caterer, the shepherd. Excuse me, haters. Excuse me, liars. Excuse me, gossipers. And he's got trays of food balanced on each arm. And he sets them out before, and and ties a napkin around your neck and sits you down and says, I want you to eat and I want all them to watch. Isn't that what it says? He prepares a table for me before my enemies because what God is about is making sure that people understand he is gracious and loving and loves to provide for people that are his. Now, if your enemies see you, being provided for in spite of the way that they treat you aren't they going to be forced to go huh what's his god up to what's her god up to that's a gracious god if, they, if he just zaps them with with lightning and they turn into a pile of ash they don't learn anything from that yeah it would be more fun for us that's true <laughs> Instead, God provides for you graciously in the midst of your enemies that they might have their hearts changed. Now, this begs the question with everything we've covered, what are we worried about? So let's look at another passage. Mark 4. Uh, In the end of Mark 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, he took, sorry, they took him with them in the boat. And just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was filling with water. And he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. They woke him and said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? All right, let's see who was paying attention. What's Jesus doing in the beginning of this story? He's asleep, okay? Okay. How did the disciples interpret that? He doesn't care. Now, I want to be more gracious to the disciples than a lot of preachers and just say, I get it. If you're in the boat and Jesus is sleeping and the waves are breaking into it, it's reasonable to conclude that maybe he's not aware because he's asleep. That's not unreasonable, right? So if you're panicking and you see the shepherd sleeping, won't you also think maybe he doesn't realize what's happening? Okay. What if you're panicking? Listen, don't worry about all that activity. Listen. What if you're panicking and you see the shepherd setting a table? He's not asleep. He can see what's going on. He can hear what's going on. And you look at him and he's setting a table. Now there's less room for you to assume he's unaware. So what you might start to think is, maybe I'm worried for no reason. Because he's setting a table. There's a hilarious story I've got to tell you about sheep. Um, I've never seen this in person. It was just something I stumbled across a week before last while I was reading about sheep. Um, evidently, and this is the right community to bring this up in, because somebody's probably done it. There's, there's this thing... They, they like show sheep for competitions and stuff. So they'll, they'll wash them, they'll give them a little trim, little haircut, and then they put a, a cape and a hood on the sheep to keep it from getting waller and dirty again, right? So when there's a bunch of show sheep and a pen and they take the first one out and they wash it and they trim it up and put the cape and the hood on it, and then they bring the sheep back to the pen, the rest of the sheep freak out because it's like this new monster has just come into the pen and they run away from the danger and the sheep with the hood and the cape on is like, there's something dangerous and it runs with them. So for a long time, the monster sheep that doesn't realize there's anything different about himself is chasing the other sheep around the pen and it's hysterical, right? Now, if the sheep would just pay attention to the shepherd, that there's like and he's laughing, then they would know, oh, clearly there's no danger, but they don't do that. So what is it that this psalm is trying to tell us when he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies? I think what he's trying to tell us is if you look at the shepherd and he's setting a table, you got nothing to worry about. It's okay. Breathe. God's got it. Whatever it is, he's got it. And that brings us to verse 6. Back in Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When I was a kid um, here, when we first we moved here in like 91, 92, and got this house in Papillion where the shower, because my mom's such a princess, the shower the boys all had to use was in the basement. <laughs> And it wasn't like in the basement, like at the bottom of the stairs. It was in the basement. And then you had to go through this whole labyrinth of unfinished, you know, concrete and like single light bulbs here and there on pole chains, all the way to the back corner of the basement, next to a foundation wall where the shower, was. it was like, you know, that old eighties orange light everywhere. And the shower was not super clean. So when you're, yeah, when you're leaving the basement, having showered, I used to think I was the only one that thought this. I always felt like, this is like a perfect story for you, Vern. You should be listening. It's a good story for you. I always felt like I was being pursued. Did you guys ever go through this? Like leaving the basement, you're being pursued. You don't know by what? But there's definitely something after you. So you have to sprint and as, like grab lights and turn them off as you're sprinting out of the basement. Because you don't want to get in trouble for leaving the lights on. <laughs> so there was one time where I figured out, okay, it must be that the pursuit does not begin until you leave the shower. Because I'm safe in the shower. Right? <laughs> so I left the water on, dried myself in the shower, like just dodging the water, dried myself off, got out, very surreptitiously got myself dressed, shut off the water, and sprinted through the basement, slamming doors behind me and turning off lights, and I got all the way upstairs unscathed. My mom and my brother are sitting in the kitchen, and they surmised, because you could hear when the water got shut off, that I hadn't showered. because it was too short of time between when the water went off and I emerged at the top of the steps. But I was just fleeing for my life, right? We've been there. David closes this song beautifully. He opens it with this introduction to the shepherd. And he tells us the shepherd's not going to withhold so that you're not going to be with it. You won't be without. He tells us that the shepherd makes us lie down and rest in pastures of grace. And he tells us that the shepherd leads us. So Jesus is out front. Between you and whatever you're facing is Jesus. Are we, we good? Everybody with me? Okay, now, things turn dark there's a shadow, there's evil, you're in the valley. And he says, don't be afraid of the evil because God's with you. And then he says, the shepherd prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies. So don't even be afraid of enemies. There's this meal that got prepared. But the way this song closes is by far my favorite part. Think about it. The shepherd is leading us, but you can hear the thud, thud, thud of footsteps behind you. And if you're anything like me when I was a kid, you think you're being pursued. And it's all well and good that Jesus is out front, but what's coming from back there? What's it say? Goodness and mercy are following you. Oh, you're being pursued. The shepherd is leading, and goodness and mercy are pursuing you all the days of your life. It just doesn't feel like it when you're in the valley. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So Jesus is out front. Goodness and mercy are bringing up the the rear, and we're going home. Amen? Let's pray.